Throughout Christ's ministry, he called people to follow him, to deny self in pursuit of Christ above all else. But what is Christ's call to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow him mean for us today? Is this call made to the neglect of all other earthly responsibilities? The gospel of Jesus has implications for every part of our lives, and we must learn what these are if we are to faithfully follow him. In Mark's gospel, we will learn of the kingdom of God and our part in it. We'll see Christ's identity as the suffering servant, his authority as the son of God, and what each of these mean for those who call Christ Lord. As we look at the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel, we'll see what it means to grow as his disciples and lay down our lives as we follow him. Well, we are continuing our series in Mark today, so I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones. We'll be on page 489 today. As you're turning there, I want you to think back to your friend group from high school. If your friend group was anything like mine, you had a lot of affectionate nicknames for each other or maybe uh, less affectionate nicknames for each other. And I want you to think back to maybe some of the nicknames that you had. Now, uh, fortunately, my name is basically already a nickname, so I've never had anything stick with me as much as people have tried to force them upon me, apart from when I was real young, Mike the Spike, that my aunt stopped when I was about five years old. But I love giving people nicknames, and this was an especially helpful gift when I was a youth pastor, and it drove all of my high schoolers crazy. So, for example, Maddie became Maddie Line. Uh, Clay, another friend, became Clay Tun. And I stuck with it until they graduated. I mean, there's some people in this room. I'm thinking of Sabrina, who I'm trying to get sob. We've got the augers over on this side. And every time I tell them, it's pronounced OJ, apparently. And then I got Mark. I'm working on Marcus Aurelius. I don't know if it's, any of these are sticking, but I am sticking with it. But one of the funny things happened after uh, all these students graduated from high school and went on. Uh, as soon as they started getting social medias, they started using the nicknames I gave them. And they're continuing to use the nicknames like to this day. So Maddie told me throughout her entire high school career that she hated Madeline. Her Instagram handle is Madeline. Clay told me he hated Clayton, and I actually stole it from the movie Tarzan, where the old Disney classic movie where every time he hears a gunshot, he goes, Clayton. So that's what every time I'd see him, I'd go, Clayton, just like that to him. So his Instagram handle to this day is Clayton. So, um, Mark, I'm waiting for your Instagram, if you ever get it again, to become Marcus Aurelius. Sabrina, I'm waiting for yours to become Saab. Everyone, if you could help me, I would really appreciate that. But what we see in, in some of these nicknames is our friends help provide for us a sense of identity. They help us bring purpose to our lives. Yet at the same time, if we're honest, they also have the potential to hurt us in ways that we never thought that we could be hurt. And as we walk through today's text, we're going to see the same thing was true of Jesus and his friends. We're going to see some of the nicknames that Jesus used to refer to his early disciples. So hopefully by now you have Mark 3. If you do, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. It's a short section. So Mark 3, beginning in verse 7 up through verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As you're seated, I invite you to pray with me once again, please. Jesus, we thank you that because of your love for us, you now call us friends. And because we can be your friends, you have brought us into relationship with you. I thank you for the ways that you work in our lives to draw us to yourself, to conform us to your image, and to speak to us through your word. And so I pray that through our time together, digging into your word, that we would be encouraged, that we would be edified, that we would be equipped to live as faithful disciples of you. May everything we do point others to you, and may we bring honor and glory to you in what we say and in how we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, before we dig into today's text, I want to take some time just to highlight some of the big picture ideas that we've already been seeing through Mark's gospel. Now, I'm intentionally, as we're going through this book, taking big sections so we can get through it in a timely manner, but this week's text intentionally gives us a little bit of breathing room to contemplate some of the bigger focuses that Mark is trying to bring into our lives. So the first thing we need to remember is is how Mark began. His prologue, his prelude to the story, he says this is the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this was very intentional. So he is actually revealing his whole hand to you before any other hand has been dealt. The reason Mark wrote this book was to tell people about Jesus. That is, to spread the gospel message as far and as wide as he possibly could. Now this signifies for us that everything Mark is telling us in this book is to communicate to us that specific reality. That Jesus is unique among all human history. He is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the anointed one, he's the one that all the law and the prophets, that's a way of summarizing the whole Old Testament, pointed to. But not only that, he is the only person to ever live who perfectly obeyed them all. But he didn't just stop there in obeying them, he also fulfilled every prophecy that God made. He divides human history and he divides the human heart today. Everyone who has ever lived will eventually bow the knee to him, either willingly or by force, and he invites us to join with him in his mission to seek and save the lost. So as Jesus' ministry starts, we see a picture of a guy named John the Baptist who prepares the way for Jesus. John points to Jesus. He even sends one of his disciples over to Jesus, at least one that we know about. Now, after all this preparation had taken place, Jesus is commissioned or sent out by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness and be tempted. Now, we remember Jesus was tempted by Satan, but even in the midst of that temptation, it's not a fair fight. Because Jesus and Satan are not equal in power or authority. And as we'll see in today's text, what Jesus is doing by going out into the wilderness is, is he is making a brand new Israel. So where the first Israel and Adam and Eve, our first parents, failed, Jesus comes in. He survives temptation from Satan, the serpent. He survives time in the wilderness. And then after surviving that, proving himself faithful, he comes back and begins his ministry. 
However, this ministry does not look how everyone expected it to. Remember that tagline that I shared from The Chosen, the uh, story of the, video, uh, the TV show about Jesus, which is super cheesy, but actually communicates this idea really well. It says, get used to different. Now, Jesus comes and changes expectations. We saw he changes expectations about rituals with fasting and Sabbath. He heals, and all he does is speak a word to someone, and people can't get enough of it. That's where I see at the beginning of this section, Jesus' fame continues to expand. So last week we wrapped up with with a showdown between the Pharisees and with Jesus. And as soon as he finishes this showdown, he runs away. Now remember, last week was the final of five confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees that culminated in the Pharisees running out and colluding with the Herodians to try to find a way to destroy Jesus. So the first uh, confrontation that we saw was Jesus forgiving the paralytic's sins. So remember, we, one of my favorite stories, the, the roof is literally removed and four people lower this paralytic down on a mat in front of Jesus and Jesus speaks to him, your sins are forgiven, but doesn't heal him right away. And then has a conversation about which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk and he does both of them. After that, we see him hanging out with, uh, as again, I love the way the NLT said it, with scum like Matthew, Levi, the tax collector and, and sinners. Then Jesus is confronted for not fasting on the regular like all the other disciples were supposed to do. And then his disciples are found not just not participating in fasting, but breaking the Sabbath and eating grain as they walked through a field. And the final straw for all of this was the healing a man with a withered hand at the synagogue on a Sabbath. Now, once again, as we get to the end of that summary of the showdown between the Pharisees and Jesus, just as it was with Satan, it's not a fair fight to begin with. Yet in the midst of that, Jesus still soundly defeats them. And in the midst of all of these conversations, he actually confronts their hard hearts at every single step of the process. He calls out their sinful thoughts. He engages with them in their sinful questions. And then he gets angry with them over their lack of care, compassion towards the poor and the marginalized. Now, as we've been working through these various stories together, I hope you have been thinking through who these people would be today. Because part of the point of these stories is to help us be drawn in to someone, like we should want to and desire and aspire to be someone in these stories, and then there's someone else in the story that we are supposed to be repulsed by. And that's really the point of every story, if you think about it. Like most good stories, at least, are trying to make a bigger point than just trying to entertain you. Think about this. In, in your life, what ideas has Jesus turned upside down? There's, there's a tendency for all of us to just tack Jesus on to what we already want to do instead of submitting everything we have and are to his lordship in our life. So our aim today, assuming that you have put your faith in him, is to do everything that we can to bring Jesus honor and glory. And part of the way we do that is by working to imitate him. That's the reason that we are called Christians. If you didn't know, Christian is just a name for referring to someone as a little Christ, within reason because none of us are ever going to be called to atone for the sins of the world. But we are commissioned, we are sent by him to go out into all the world, and just like he did, make disciples of all the nations. Now, this is the greatest adventure anyone could ever be called into. See, God wants to use you and me, all of us, to accomplish an eternal mission. And this is far more than just a Sunday morning affair. This is an entire life-encompassing journey where God can use normal, ordinary people like you and me. Now, back to the text. First thing we see Jesus do here is withdrawing. We're starting to see a pattern emerge for Jesus here. 
So some big major events happens. He, he does a healing. He has a confrontation at the synagogue, or, or maybe he has a showdown between him and Satan, and then he immediately isolates himself. We see his aim, his focus is not to create a big following. He's not trying to build up a big crowd. That's not why he was sent to earth. His job is to accomplish his father's will and to seek and save the lost. Or, as he said in chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near or at hand, so repent and believe the gospel. Now, despite most of the story being distractions or shifts from his primary focus, he continues to go back to his primary ministry, which is preaching. But he can't just preach 24-7. He needs time to recharge. He needs time to pray. But notice again, I mentioned when the first time we saw this instance of the word crowds in Mark's gospel, that the crowds often serve as a foil or like an antagonist to what Jesus is trying to do. So look at verse 7 again. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and here's that nasty group again. A great crowd followed him. He can't escape them. But notice that these crowds are not just coming from Capernaum. If it was just Capernaum, he could probably handle it. These crowds are actually coming from all over now. Look at all these various places that are listed. So we have Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. So if we go back to a map that I've shared with you before, all the places that are listed here, here's Capernaum, which is where Jesus' ministry was centered and focused on. So Capernaum is, is where he began. We see Galilee, which is this area over here is Nazareth, where Jesus was born. So people are coming from all over Galilee. He's out, they're also coming from Judea, which is all the way south here. They're coming from Jerusalem, which is like the big city. They're coming from the biggest city. So like New York City is coming all the way up to see what Jesus is doing. But even further south than that, they're coming from Idumea. So everything around here is, is included so far from beyond the Jordan. So that would be this Jordan River. So somewhere over here, people are coming from. And then he goes north to Tyre. And Sidon is so far north, you can't even fit it on the map. So literally everyone in the surrounding areas is now descending upon Capernaum, trying to get a hold of to get to Jesus. He can't do anything anymore. Remember, Jesus was, was actually described as, as like the entire house being full after he uh, uh, healed the leper, but it's just going to continue getting worse. So he can't hide, he can't get a moment to himself, and next week's text, we'll actually see he doesn't even have time to eat. The crowd keeps following him everywhere he goes. But what is it that people are drawn to with Jesus? Look at verse 8. So it describes all these places that it's coming from. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing... That's what drove them to him. Now, what does that look like in these people's lives? These people who are so desperate to get something from him that they're on the verge of crushing him. Now, this is the people who are just using Jesus to, to try to get their own purposes fulfilled. They're not interested in hearing what he has to say. They're not interested in learning from him. They just want their own individual interests met. And that's where he, he tells his disciples, verse 9, to have a boat ready for the crowd because he's so worried that they're just going to continue pushing forward that he's just going to become engulfed by them. So he has his disciples plan this escape route for him, but even that might not be enough to get away because people can swim at least for a little while. Remember, we've already seen that Jesus refuses to get sidetracked or, or taken off from his primary mission. He doesn't give in to people's demands, yet he still continues healing many people. That's what it says in verse 10. He had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. It means everyone who was sick was desperate to just get a hold of, to cling to Jesus. 
Now, some of it, you look at this and, and, and we're almost scoffing, or I, as I read this, I almost start scoffing at these people who are just trying to get something from him. But then I started thinking and, and contemplating and reflecting on some of this this week. Imagine if you had a debilitating disease and you'd had that disease for years. What would you do to get it taken care of? How desperate would you be to, to just get this issue fixed? Think of, of the story of, of the woman who had a, a bleeding for 12 years. We'll get there in Mark 5. But the Bible tells us that this woman had been to as many physicians as she could, such that she had spent her entire life savings trying to be healed. But instead of healing, things just got worse. So as this woman hears about th- this person, Jesus, who is healing anyone who just gets close to him, how desperate do you think she would have been to get near to him? How desperate would you have been? Imagine that at this moment right now, you're struck deaf. What would you give in order to be able to hear once again? Well, every so often, there's a video, that, a new video that goes viral of something like a child getting a cochlear implant turned on for the first time. Some of you may have seen them. They tug at the heartstrings. They're revealing and eye-opening to you just how wonderful it is to have your senses working once again. Or maybe you've seen some similar videos where someone who is colorblind gets some of those special glasses in order to see color. One of my favorite ones I saw come out a few years ago. I'll just play a little snippet from it, but it's, it's really interesting to see how this person who's colorblind finally sees color for the first time. Watch this video. Um, and that, if you just think about this, like it just stood out to me. That's why I remembered this. He says, you guys can see this every day. Have you ever just stop and think about the miracle of your eye? <laughs> being able to see color around you. Like even him having to say, like, uh, I'm going to have to relearn my colors because <laughs> everything is just this shade of gray. Now, this is just with color. Imagine what that would be like or the extent that you would feel excited or enthusiastic if you had not been able to see anything or you'd spent your entire life unable to hear or you were stuck, unable to walk, and in an instant just like that, Jesus heals you. Now, part of the reason that I share a video like that is because it's easy to just leave these stories as text on a page and forget that all these are referring to real people. Now, if you had been blind your whole life, wouldn't you stop at nothing to get to the healer? Now, the difficulty is all of us need healing of some sort, but some people are better able to hide it than others. And the spiritual healing that everyone needs is often viewed as less important than the physical healing. However, Scripture tells us that the angels in heaven throw a party. They get more excited than the guy that we just saw who saw color for the first time when someone puts their faith in Jesus. But notice that sick people aren't the only ones who are taking notice of Jesus here. And there's a certain level of irony in verse 10. Or sorry, verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. See, everyone wants something from Jesus except the unclean spirits, who really just want to be left alone. Now, each story that we've been studying, remember, serves to validate Mark's very first verse and is meant to force us to ask the question, who is Jesus? See, these evil, these unclean spirits already know the answer to that, but they hate it. And other people, they have ideas about who Jesus is, but he keeps subverting their expectations, turning them on their heads. See, people are hoping, they've been anxiously waiting, but is this really him? Notice the demons don't question it, they're just upset about it. But then he responds with strictly ordering them to not make him known. Why does he continue to silence them? Remember, we've seen through these first three chapters so far, his primary mission, his primary focus is preaching. 
It's not yet the right time for His glory and full identity to be revealed. Again, not that that's stopping the news from traveling. Notice a bit of irony here. His fame keeps spreading. There's nothing He can do to stop it, which leads Him to this regular pattern, this habit of withdrawing, spending time alone. At least most of the time it's not alone. uh, Most of the time it is alone. It's not always completely alone, as we'll see in this next section. So His fame continues to expand. In response to that, Jesus actually shrinks, narrows His focus. So we see here He went up on the mountain, Mountains actually have a really special place in God's story. If you think back to Genesis, I think it's 22, where Abraham was was, uh, commanded by God to go offer up his one and only son as an offering, he obeyed and went up to a mountain. Now, that mountain actually is significant throughout all of, of biblical history because it's the exact same mountain where Solomon would eventually build a temple to the Lord. We see in in, uh, Exodus chapter 19, Moses, after they have uh, escaped from Egypt, they're beginning their wilderness wanderings, Moses goes up to a mountain to meet with the Lord and to establish the rules for relationship between God and His people. Mark here is signifying that God, through Jesus, is reestablishing, starting over, a brand new people. But it's also important to note how this is taking place. This is all God's work. There's nothing the people did. Notice, let's read this again. Verse 13, he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they responded in faith. They obeyed him. And actually, verse 14 says he appointed 12. A more literal translation of that would be he made 12. This would be not great English, which is why ours says appointed, and actually most of the book of Mark is really rough English. But Mark is is trying to make the point, trying to communicate to us that all of this, everything that's taking place is God's doing. It's not the apostles. Now, in, in reconstituting, creating a new Israel, what Jesus is going to do is where the first Israel failed repeatedly, the new Israel will not. So we see through the Old Testament, the first Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. We see that in Isaiah chapter 49. This new Israel, this reconstituted Israel, will actually go out into all the nations. Where the first Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus chapter 19, this new Israel are already priests and a holy nation. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. But Mark also makes an additional note about these 12. Jesus calls them apostles. Apostles. Now, that's not a word that is used super frequently throughout the New Testament, but it denotes the idea that these are meant to be messengers or representatives, which makes sense when you go on and look at what their mission is. Jesus gives them a threefold mission here. First is to be with Him. Second is to send them. And the third thing is to preach with authority. So first we have uh, be with These disciples, these apostles, are going to be marked by time being close to Jesus. They're going to be following in His ways. They're going to be learning His methods. They're going to become students of Him. And that call for them is the same call for us today. One author that I've read has has said or described the Christian faith as us apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, learning to walk and follow in His footsteps. But after time with, it leads to sent. See, none of us are meant to live lives in isolation. Jesus has commissioned and sent us out to be His ambassadors into the world, representing and pointing to Him. That is why at the end of our service, we are sent to go out and represent. We are not just dismissed. We are going somewhere. We're supposed to represent Jesus to the best of our ability to the watching world. And the last thing is preaching and having authority. Notice that we can't represent Jesus without preaching. 
Now, you may have heard that quote that is uh, mistakenly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That doesn't fit with Jesus, what Jesus commands and sends his disciples to do. He commands them to preach. But notice as well that the authority also comes from all these previous things that he has talked about. Authority can only come from being with Jesus, can only come from him sending us and giving us his authority, and then we are sent out as his representatives, which leads to this preaching. Now, one note on this, it's not preaching referring to what I'm doing right now. All of us are called to preach the gospel at all times, and it's necessary to use words. So listen, listen, uh, our words, everything we say, are meant to point people to God. Do your words do that, or do they not? That's what, that's what it means when Jesus is commissioning us to preach, is using our words in such a way that it honors and glorifies God. So do your words do that. From there, Jesus goes on, or, or sorry, Mark goes on to talk about these 12 disciples or apostles that he has appointed. Now, it's the same 12 in every single one of the Gospels, but it's not the only people who follow Jesus during his earthly ministry. Otherwise, when we get to Acts, there would not have been a Matthias to replace Judas, who eventually kills himself. I guess that's a spoiler alert, my bad. In every instance of the apostles being listed, the first one listed is always Simon. Uh, We often refer to him as Peter, which is a translation of Cephas, which is where we get the word rock. So, to whom he gave the nickname... See, that's where I got the nickname idea from, Peter. Now, rock has been mistakenly used by the Roman Catholic Church, and and it's a bit of a misnomer in describing him as the rock because of what happens to Peter throughout most of Jesus' ministry. So when we get to the end of Jesus' ministry, Peter's the guy that denies him three times. Throughout most of the Gospels, Peter is the one who tends to be the most outspoken one, the impulsive one, who always just responds like knee-jerk reaction without really thinking about what he's saying. It's hardly tempting or fitting to refer to him as this rock. But Jesus sees in Peter something the world completely misses. And Peter winds up preaching what is probably the most impactful sermon that has ever been preached. And it just so happened to be his first sermon too. So his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are saved. Like That is the top, the cream of the crop. I've never talked to anyone else that had 3,000 people saved after their, especially their first sermon. But you think about Peter's ministry from there on, everything else is just going to be downhill. That's his first instance in preaching. But it goes on. So we start with Simon, we go on to James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom another nickname, he gave the name Boarnes. Boerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Now, these are brothers, nicknames, sons of thunder, which commentators speculated all sorts of things about this. Either these two guys had really strong reactions to things, maybe they were really big dudes, but they did something that when we get to heaven, we can find out about what exactly it was that made them referred to as the sons of thunder. We go on from there to Andrew, and Andrew is earlier described as the brother of Simon, so we have two sets of brothers in Jesus' ministry, and and again, we're not sure why Mark split them up. Most people believe it's because uh, Simon or Peter, uh, James and John were the inner three, the ones that were most closely connected to Jesus, and then the rest of the disciples were involved and engaged in what Jesus was doing as well. Now, we don't know a lot, honestly, about a lot of the rest of the disciples. Church history tells us that pretty much every single one of these disciples died a pretty gruesome death, most of them at the hands of the Romans, with the exception of John, who was exiled onto Patmos and then saw the vision of of, uh, heaven coming down to earth. Uh, But there are three that we know a little bit more about. 
That is Matthew, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. So remember what Levi or Matthew's occupation was before Jesus called him? A tax collector. And the second Simon is described as what? A zealot. A zealot is someone who was actively working, like conspiring and coming up with plans to overthrow all the Roman rule. How do you think these two guys got along? I don't think it's a coincidence that these two men were brought together as part of Jesus reforming the people of God. You could not have two more politically diverging people in a group. Yet they lived and ministered together for three plus years. Now, some of what this signifies is the church actually offers friendship and relationship based on alien standards. See, the world tries to copy the sense of camaraderie and depth that we as Christians have, but it's built on a fault line, and it will not endure the realities of the world. Now, we need to be honest. I think we in the church have have too closely wedded our politics and our faith for way too long, and we need to reassess our priorities to remain faithful to the Bible. We need to evaluate people according to God's standards, not political standards. And I'm glad I can preach this when it's not an election year. See, politics have become, for many people, their religion and their litmus test for orthodoxy. But politics provides an overly simplistic solution to a much bigger and a deeper problem. That's exactly why we need the gospel. I've shared this quote before. It's from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, where he says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me read that again. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the only thing that can hold up to the weight of a broken world that we find ourselves living in. Because politics only vilifies one side and only commends their side. What happens if you question or doubt? In today's culture, you're literally canceled. Jesus, on the other hand, not only welcomes people in, he brings on their questions. And when you are feeling furthest away, when you are stuck in your sin, and when you can't seem to escape the weight and the burden of the world around you, that's when he draws closest to you. Not only that, but he doesn't allow you. He doesn't let you get away with continuing to operate by the worldly standards that you first used when you came to him. See, all worldly standards are going to fall short in some way. Only the gospel message is strong enough to endure under the weight of reality. It takes all the messiness, all the brokenness, all the hurt that people have, and instead of blaming others, it provides a solution to it on the cross. And that cross needs to remain true of all of us today. Jesus actually says we're supposed to take up, pick up our own cross daily to follow after him. You think that's easy? Jesus says it's not going to be easy. But in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the turmoil, God gives us himself to help us work through it. But it's not just himself that he gives. He also gives us, brings us, draws us into a community. One of the most difficult things in our world today, I think, is finding community. Now, part of the uh, difficulty with that is everyone wants it, but no one is willing to do what it takes to create it. 
That, that is giving of yourself, giving of your time, spending, hanging out with people that may not look, think, or act like you. In fact, one, um, I'm convinced that, that uh, the hardest transition anyone goes through in life is when you go from college to post-college. Because college, you have like an immediate friend group. You have people that are interested in the same things as you. You have people that are passionate about similar things to you. As soon as you graduate from college, you're trying to figure out how to work full-time. How do you cook for yourself without eating McDonald's every day? How do, you, how do you make friends? How do you find a church? How do you build a community? How do you find a spouse? All these pieces are so much more difficult the instant you get out of this immediate friend group in college. And then on top of that, people add their own expectations, their desires that no group that they are a part of can ever meet, which is where all of us need the church. I saw a tweet a number of years ago from a guy named Matt Marker who said, if you want a church with community, get ready to let people call you out on sin, drive old ladies to church, bring folks baby meals, teach Sunday school, pray for the body, have long conversations with awkward people. Just side note, if you don't know any awkward people, you might be the awkward person. Get ready to celebrate weddings and kids while waiting for your own. Yet this is the community that God calls us into. It's actually dying to yourself for the sake of your brother and sister who's sitting around you. Now, one of the things that I've learned in, in ministry is people tend to complain about not being connected to the church mostly in two months, August and January. And what is it that leads up to those months? Well, August is coming off of, off of summer where everyone travels all the time. Like when I was in Cheyenne, people would, would travel up, up, like go to the front range and go explore wherever they want. And when I lived in Colorado, people would go up to the mountains. Here in Minnesota, we have cabin season. Don't laugh, it's a real thing. All you guys leave in the summer. So in the midst of that, why would you not feel disconnected from the church that we need to spend time with in order to actually create and foster and build these kind of relationships that it's talking about in this tweet, or the kind of relationships that Jesus is describing here in, in Mark's gospel? And then in January, you're coming off of this crazy weird season between Thanksgiving and Christmas where you don't know what day it is. Your pants have gone up about three sizes. You're full all the time. You're sleeping more than you have slept in a year, and you're not spending any time with people at church. No wonder you would feel disconnected in those two seasons of your life. And then on top of that, I think, I think you also need to ask the question, what is it that you are giving to the church? What have you been putting into the church? And the response I often get is, oh, nothing. People are supposed to pursue me, which is true up to a point. <laughs> but if you don't engage, if you don't let others in, if you don't try to reach out at all, no one is going to engage with you. See, every relationship on this side of heaven is two-sided, except God towards us. We don't contribute anything to that relationship. And then on top of that, the church is actually supposed to be a supernatural community that gets along where the world can't. And you look around this room, we have people from different ethnic backgrounds. We have people that are comprised of different generations, and that's one that I don't think churches often talk about enough. Different generational, we, we have different ideas, we like different music, we have different preferences on clothing. Don't laugh because you all have talked to me about those things. We're coming from different economic realities, we're coming from different political realities, and all of those things, when we come together, don't matter because we're a part of something much bigger than the world that we live in. And in the midst of that, Jesus has the audacity to refer to his followers as apostles as his messengers, as his representatives. Isn't that crazy? Friends, even when we get to lists of names like this in the Bible, they're important for us. We need to slow down and then contemplate exactly what is being said in them. 
Jesus in this text, I think, intentionally models for us what relationships in the church are supposed to look like. They're not easy. I didn't even talk about this last one, but even in the church, there's going to be betrayal, which isn't easy, but guess what? Jesus understands exactly what that's like. We'll need to get over some of our preferences. We'll need to let go of some of our ideals. And all of this is good because it's a reminder that it's not about us. Now, I, I, uh, shortly after I started in ministry, I, I quickly discovered that the theme of a pastor is telling people they're not that big of a deal. Like, none of us matter in, in light of what Jesus has done for us. We're, and at the same time, God loved you so much individually that he sent his one and only son to die for you. It's this weird tension point that we live in as Christians. So when we come together as a church, Jesus has words for us. We come to the church not to be served, but to serve. And everything we do is meant to represent Jesus to everyone that is in proximity relationships with us. Anyone that we rub shoulders with is an opportunity for us to point them to Jesus in what we say and in how we live. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you have created a body that is, is supernaturally connected. Father, I confess that so often we put worldly standards and ideals ahead of what you have called us to do and be, how you have called us to live and operate. I thank you that as, as Paul reminds us in Acts, that in you we live and move and have our being. And so I pray that our conversations today would be seasoned and sprinkled with salt, that the people that we interact with, that are in our spheres of influence, that we would continue looking for ways to encourage them, to point them closer to you. God, I thank you that the gospel is, is strong enough to endure the weight and the difficulty and the tension of a sinful, broken world. Got to think of, of that guy who uh, could see color for the first time and, and long for the day where we'll finally see you face to face, where our sickness will be healed, where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sadness, but joy and joy to the full because of you. God, may we as a church give a little picture, a little foretaste of what that looks like in our relationships with each other. May we demonstrate that to others that we interact with even as we walk out of these doors today. Thank you that you care for us and that you have provided a way for us to come before you and to live a new life, not for ourselves, but for you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.